Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, how's it going? Good. Uh, how many of you guys go to first service? Just out of curiosity. First service? How many of you guys go to third service? Most everybody else? All right, cool. Well, I go to all of them. So, um, But it's good to be here with you guys today, at least, and uh, just to be looking at Colossians. And I know... I'm kind of coming in basically halfway through, uh, so I, I've been trying to keep up with the podcast, and it's been really, um, it's been awesome. So I appreciate Jim and Mike walking us through through those first couple chapters, and and today we're going to dive into chapter three. But just so you know, my name is Elijah Dally, and you know one of the the things that I love about. Uh, spaces like this is that I don't always get to meet everybody um, on a Sunday morning. I'm usually staying pretty busy and so this is kind of an opportunity usually to get to meet um, new people and kind of make the church a little bit smaller. So it's great. So if at some point either, you know, either even next week before the class or after class, um, just come up to me and tell me your name and I'd love to just be able to actually put a face and a name together. So chances are I probably have heard your name before um, just through prayer requests or something like that. We, we always have the coming through for our staff, praying through people, praying for people throughout the church, um, but I don't always have a face to put with it, so um, we'd love to get, to get to know you guys a little bit better that way. As far as um, just me, just to get, just for you to know who I am a little bit more, um, I'm married, I have two kids, uh, one is 11 months today, so there you go, uh, it's like, I knew I was getting close, so um, the other one is going to be three and a half years old pretty soon, uh, so they're, they're young, they're crazy, one of them's got a broken arm, so if you see a little kid walking around with a blue cast on, that's because we pushed him, no, I'm just joking, um, no, he was on a trampoline and just fell off wrong, and, and uh, he tells everybody he bent his arm weird, so broke his elbow actually, but he gets it off in two weeks, he's excited for that because it's summer, and so it was a terrible time to break. It, but um, we're really thankful that it wasn't as, as bad as it could have been because I guess apparently they need surgery on that sometimes. So, but um, my, I love my family and we love this church, and so we're we're grateful to be a part of really what we get to do here. And it's a reminder too with this letter, even that Paul's writing is that he's writing it to people, to um, the Colossians, to the, the the church that is in Colossae, to people that. Um, some that he has encountered, some that he hasn't yet. But ultimately, we're reminded that this is a relational letter. You know, just like I am here trying to explain a letter that was written a long time ago and trying to understand how it can be understood and applied in our context, uh, Paul was writing to his church to encourage them, to remind them of the truth of the gospel and what it is the person and the work of Christ accomplished. And so, uh, first thing I want to do is just talk about chapters 1 and 2. So, if you had to explain explain and kind of just give a brief summary of what those chapters consisted of, what would you say? How would you explain that? Encouragement. Encouragement, yeah. What else? What would you say an encouragement for? Their, their journey, their faith journey. Yeah. Encourage them to maintain, stay on track. Mm-hmm. Defining the Christian life, what it looks like. Yeah, defining the Christian life, yeah. What else? Supremacy of Jesus. Supremacy of Christ, yeah. What else? And our unity under that supremacy, how that impacts 
us in our relationships. Yeah, yeah. His supremacy specifically is over us. He's the firstborn of us. You know, he's it brings unity to our our church, our group, our our fellowship. What else? <coughs> What our walk should look like. What our walk should look like, yeah. Definitely. How our walk is possible because it's Christ in us. Yes, our walk is possible because it's Christ in us, absolutely. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I think um, it's encouraging for him to the people of Classe, but also what a great encourager he is for other people that he works with. So I think he's a perfect example of one another, that kindness is such a beautiful gift. And when you recognize someone and you encourage them, it certainly makes a difference and he's such a great encourager. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to jump in today. And um, just so you know, you have a blank sheet of paper for your notes. So here's the thing about me um, when I teach classes, at least thus far. I, I'm, I, I would say I'm pretty fairly new to, in terms of teaching on a regular basis. But um, I don't usually give notes. I will give additional resources uh, that will help kind of bolster different aspects. So, for instance, this last spring I taught the, the uh, Daniel, the, uh, the book of Daniel. How many of you guys were in that class? Any of you guys take that with me? A couple of you guys. So what I did with that class was I essentially I gave them additional resources depending on each chapter and what was necessary, what would be helpful in understanding the book. And so whether it was like, you know, the history of uh, the Babylonian Empire or who the kings were in each, the Babylonian or the Medo-Persian or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, uh, what the geographical locations were like, I'm going to give those types of things. But in terms of notes, here's what I encourage people to do, is to actually write it in their Bible. And some of you guys may feel uncomfortable with that, that's all right. But here's why I love doing that. First off, notes get thrown away. And, And so it just is... Really, for you guys to write it down is maybe helpful for that moment, but if down the line you never actually come back to it again, you can't actually see what it is uh, that that you can kind of carry over into it. The other thing is that when I was 18 years old, my dad gave me a Bible, and in it were all of his notes. And so it became a really meaningful thing for me to have this book that actually contained all of the thoughts that he interacted with, the questions that he had, the things that he highlighted. And so I encourage pretty much everybody to do that same thing, uh, to be able to pass those things along so you're not just passing along uh, a Bible but you're actually passing along your own interaction with it and so that is a meaningful thing to me I still have it to this day and my hope is that I'll be able to do the same thing with my kids and so I encourage you guys to, to do that as well Um, And so, really, as we dive into the book, um, again, I'm going to ask you simply to take notes in your Bible. Whatever you think is meaningful, that kind of helps the text come alive. um, And ultimately, that you even want to wrestle with more. Um, That's what I want you you guys to do. And so, I'm going to point out different things. And if you guys want to write it down, if it's helpful and you've never known it before, you can. If you have known that and it's not that useful, don't worry about it. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, Scripture is really all you need. And so, any additional notes might be helpful clarifiers, but they're not necessary for, for really understanding and engaging the Word of God. And so um, so I want to just go, give a brief summary of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And chapter 1 is simply this, that Paul is encouraged by everything that he's begun, that he's begun to hear about the Colossians and the, the, the people of Colossae and their faith. Everything that he's begun to hear is that it is exploding. They're bearing good fruit. They're becoming the people that God always designed them to be. And what he's saying is this is a direct result of the fact that Jesus Christ is in charge, that he's died on the cross, that he's risen from the dead, and that it was always the plan of God for this to take place. That in Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn from among the dead. That in him, all things hold together. In him, all things, they sustain their existence. Without him, there is nothing. 
And so in Christ, we begin to inherit the blessings of heaven. That is what Colossians 1 is about. So what does Paul say? Keep pursuing Jesus. This is where you will find fulfillment. This is where you will find life. This is where you will find um, completeness, right? That's kind of what Mike even began to talk about, unpacking what exactly we mean by that. And so, in, in chapter 2, uh, Paul goes on, I, we're praying for you that your wisdom would increase. We're praying for you that you wouldn't be deceived by all these new philosophies that are beginning to prop themselves up, knowing, I mean, we know, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these were people that began to uh, propagate their philosophies, you know, a couple hundred years before this, but at this point, it had already exploded to new depths. And surely, obviously, there were you know, philosophers before them and after, but they are the ones that began to to really pioneer, to, to, to begin a new pathway towards what it meant to understand reality all around us. And what Paul begins to unpack is this idea that people were trying to add things to Christ, that people had accepted their faith in Christ, but then he said, oh, but you should still follow some rules, and oh, by the way, there's some secret knowledge, hidden knowledge that you could have as well, that you could, that you could possess that would actually you know, make it an exclusive um, kind of superiority that you could be a part of if you just gained this kind of access to God. And that's what Paul is beginning to address in the book of Colossians, that all you need is Christ. All you need is Christ. All you need is Christ. And so, um, really what it reminds me of, so, um, I don't know, how many of you guys have been wakeboarding before? Have you guys ever tried that? Not many of you. Some of you. Okay. Well, I hadn't either. And uh, two years ago, around this time, I tried for the first time, and I could not do it. It was so frustrating. Um, so, my, the creative arts team, we went on a retreat. Um, and we were able to to use, a, someone let us borrow their lake house to kind of just um, go there and plan through. So we usually will plan through Advent. We'll plan through sermon series of what songs we'll do and what the stage will look like and how we can create new engaging pieces that ultimately continue to magnify the gospel in a creative way that helps determine and define a worship culture that people would, would engage in that. So that's kind of what we try to do every single day, or every single day, but especially in these retreats. We go to this lake house and basically everyone's stands up but me, right? Everybody stands up on this wakeboard but me. And it's so frustrating because I'm competitive, all right? I wanted to, I wanted at least to be able to stand up on this thing. Riding it is a plus, but if I can just at least stand up, but I couldn't. I never did it. Well, the next year we went to a new lake house. They happened to have access to a wakeboard, so I got to do it again. I failed again. I could not do it. I don't know why. It was so frustrating to me. Finally, this year, this year, we went to a lake house again, and they had the same access to this thing, and I finally did it. Stood up. I won Chick-fil-A on a bet, which I think probably encouraged it, honestly. Uh, it was like what, what my soul needed to just be able to have the gumption to make it happen. So anyways, I finally do it. But the reason that I had such a hard time doing it the first two times is because when you're wakeboarding, you're supposed to let the boat pull you up. But what I kept trying to do was pull myself up. And so what happened is I kept trying to use my arms over and over again. And, it, you know, seven tries and, like, my arms were dead. I'm not a very strong person to begin with, let alone, you know, putting this new, this trying to lift my own weight up to this boat so that I could be standing. It just never, ever happened. Finally, the third time, it finally clicked into my mind, into my, into my muscles, into my muscle memory to just allow the boat to pull me up so that I could stand and I started to ride. And this is what Paul is fighting against. It's like... I, the, 
everyone told me, let the boat pull you up, let the boat pull you up, let the boat pull you up. But in my mind, I, it had to become real. It had to, be, it had to make sense. And this is kind of the letter. I mean, this is not a complex letter, right? When Paul is writing it to the, the, to the Colossians, he's telling them some pretty basic things. But it has to become real in our heads. It has to become, it has to make sense. It has to go from, you know, I, you know you've probably heard the, the farthest distance is from our head to our hearts, you know, the 18 inches or something like that. And it's true. You know, we can know something, but until we actually experience it, it will never become real to our hearts. And the hope of this letter is that Paul is going to help us try to do that step by step by step. And yet, acknowledging the fact that it's completely the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we come into chapter 3. We're finally there. So uh, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 1 through 4 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And so here's my question. Why set our eyes on Jesus? What makes this the person we should set our eyes on? What makes this above idea meaningful? Why Jesus? What do you think? The song, Our Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus' Love and Righteousness. I mean, it's just, it's, it's our belief. It's, it's who we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think if the foundation of our faith is death to self, you know, that if Christ died so that we could live, if he has bought us with Christ, then that would only be natural that he's the one that we look to. He's mm-hmm. the Redeemer. Mm-hmm. He's the one, you know, Galatians 5 says, we've been crucified. We don't live. He lives through us now. Yeah, absolutely. We've been crucified with Christ, and so when we look to him, it's the reminder of what it is we're, we're walking in. What else? Yeah. If our eyes are focused on Jesus and we don't have time to look at other things uh, that can pull us away from him. Absolutely. From the truth. Vain philosophies, teachings of men, yeah. uh, com- commandments that you know indulge the flesh. You know, don't yeah. touch, don't taste, don't do this. Which are Paul says perfectly fine if you're trying for self-abasement. But he said, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and then you'll be centered. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So here's what I want to kind of pull out first: is if you notice that what Paul says is he doesn't actually say. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Jesus, he doesn't say, keep seeking the things above where Jesus is. He uses the title Christ. Now, who knows what Christ means? Messiah, Messiah, right? Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. And it's who the Jewish people expected. It's who they expected to come and save them. Save them from those who had subjugated them into slavery, the, the, the oppressors. But it also, in the Greek you know, uh, translation of Messiah, is Christ. So what he's using, he's tying in a specific word when he talks about Jesus. That he's pulling in not just a title of Christ, but the entire narrative of what the Jewish people expected. That he's writing to a church that is both full of Jewish and Gentile people. This is Christ. Keep your mind set on Christ. And as soon as he says that word, he pulls into it, in addition to it, every part of the narrative. When you were slaves in Egypt, 
when you were worshiping other gods, when God brought you out into the wilderness, when you rebelled, when you came back, when God provided for you judges, and you rebelled, and you came back, and you rebelled, and you came back, and then God provided for you a king, even though he said, don't get a king, but you got one anyways, and then you rebelled, and you came back, and then God promised a Messiah because you had been basically deported. You know, the Assyrians came and they, they took over uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish nation, and then the Babylonians came they took over the Jewish nation because they would rebel and they would come back. This title, Christ, has wrapped up within it every part of this narrative so that they would remember this idea of the fact that God had finally sent their Savior, their Redeemer, this God who had entered into time, into history, to bring out the Jewish people into freedom once again. And of course, it wasn't the one that they anticipated. It wasn't the, the political dominant king that rode in on a white stallion. That God will come, but the God who came, came to be one like us, came in poverty, came in, into nothing, came as a, in the nature of a, of a servant, is what Philippians tells us, right? This is the God that approached us. And wrapped up within this idea is remembering that this Messiah, although he has been crucified, is not anymore. That although he was put on a tree, he's been risen from the dead. That grave is empty. And every bit of power that rose that God from the dead is the same thing that he's begun to offer to us. And the more that we begin to put our eyes on this Jesus, the more it begins to radically change every part of how we live on earth. The more we start to look to heaven, the more that that view of heaven begins to invade our view of earth. That is the beginning of how we begin to see Jesus. And some interesting parts about this is that a lot of the commentators that I've read say this is an allusion to Psalm 110. And you may be familiar with Psalm 110, maybe not, but it's essentially it's, it's a talking about how uh, the Lord has been seated at the right hand of God and He's kind of basically waiting for His enemies to be made into a footstool. And this, this psalm has been basically, it's been put in, it's been weaved in throughout all of the New Testament, but especially Hebrews. Uh, and, and it's kind of this idea, it's alluding to this fact that Jesus is not simply a human figure who has gone into the heavens, but as seated at the right hand of God, that this is actually a divine figure that is one with the Father, not one separated from Him. In fact, F.F. Bruce notes that the seated at the right hand of God, this is actually an old creed. So if you think of it this way, Christians, before, at some point they didn't have the New Testament, right? These books came they came into the church after the church was established. And, but one of the things that they did have uh, was, was they had um, these creeds that they would say. They would have this oral tradition that they would pass around. And this oral tradition became for them what they believed. And he says that seated at the right hand of God, this is something that's, again, been weaved in throughout all of Scripture. So much so that it most, most likely would have been something that the Christians were already repeating over and over again. And Paul is simply using it to establish and confirm not only the deity of Christ, but all of his work as well. That it has been finished through Christ. And so, as Paul begins to, to kind of give it to us, he begins to remind us of all, even what, what Christ was crucified for. If you remember when Jesus was before the Pharisees in Mark 14, and they're questioning, the, questioning him, and they're trying to get him to say something that ultimately will lead to blasphemy so they can kill him. And this is what Mark 14, 62, uh, 61-62 says. It says, But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Because he has, uh, yeah. So this idea of being seated at the right hand of God is, is exactly from Daniel. I don't know if you guys remember we talked about that, you know, several weeks ago. Uh, that these these uh, these texts in Mark and Matthew, Luke, they all mention them, and that actually this is. Oh wait. This is actually in the future. Yeah, this hasn't happened yet. It's about to happen. Jesus is in the garden today. So you guys, spoiler alert. Um, but we talked about Jesus first referencing this passage in Mark 13. And then he references it again when he's talking to the Pharisees. And when he's talking to the Pharisees, he's referencing Daniel 7, which is ultimately Jesus saying that there is a coming of the Son of Man. He, it is, it is, he's going to come and he's going to have his seat next to the Father and he will be worshipped and glorified. And for this to happen, especially inside of a, a, a Jew... Their, their mind, it would be blasphemy. And that is exactly what they begin to say. Like, what else can be said about this guy? They tear their clothes. They say, let's crucify him. And so, uh, Paul reinforcing this idea that Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God is reinforcing not only his deity, but the fact that his work is completed. And so, why keep seeking? Ultimately, at the end of the day, if we continue to allow ourselves to get distracted by things on earth, it will completely um, move us away from the, the, the reality, the truth of what is in heaven. What Paul is saying, even you know, um, as he talked in chapter 2, is people are trying to add to the rules. People are trying to establish more things that ultimately help people become like him or to, to help them at least feel superior to the other Christians around them. And that's not what he says. He says that ultimately they were attempting to establish their holiness and their salvation by trying to get into the presence of God. They were trying to ultimately move themselves and add to, add to heaven, essentially. What else can we do to get into heaven? How can we get there? What can we add to get there. And Paul's saying that simply won't work. And the reasons are because you're already there. That when you begin to look at Christ, you begin to see the work is finished. He's seated at the right hand of God. And actually, how many of you guys have keep seeking the things above where Christ is? Uh, Do you guys have keep seeking the things above or do you have like set your heart on things above? Do you have that? So, and and that also says set your minds as well in verse 2. So in verse 1 it says, keep seeking the things above. And in verse 2 it says, set your mind on things above. And in verse 1 when it says, keep seeking the things above, some translations have, set your heart on things above. Now the reason of that is not because the word heart is actually mentioned, it's not. But because the word mentioned there is a Greek word that, has, that carries with it this, this connotation of desire, of delight. And, and so what the translators have done there is, is, I think, correct, is that they have said Paul's trying to play both on the emotion and the intellect. He's saying that you should use all of your emotion to delight in the God that is above. And you should use all of your intellect to think and to process and consider this God who is above. He's engaging both parts. He's asking you to, to move forward with your entire being to consider this God who is above. Now, uh, one of the things that ends up happening is, um, in doing so, is again what Paul begins to say in, at the end of, um, of verse 3, or in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And so, what's he saying? He's saying, If you have died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. It's hidden with Christ and God. And again, our English translations don't say this well as the Greek actually does. Um, I won't get too far into the Greek. There's a couple things in Greek that are worth pointing out, but I'm going to try my best. I know that most people just don't care about that. But I think this is a worthy one to talk about. Because what this is is a perfect passive verb. 
which means that it's, because it's perfect, um, it means that this is something that has been done and that it's its results are constantly being carried forward. So a really easy way to explain this is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. That word finished is a perfect verb because he's saying not simply that it was accomplished once, but that it was accomplished and the, the results of that accomplishment continue to invade every single aspect of the future. That it will never be unaccomplished. This is how it is. This hidden idea is the same way. It's perfect. And and it's important that it's passive because it's not something we are doing. It's not we are not hiding in Christ. We have been hidden in Christ. The passive is that we've been acted upon. We've been put into Christ when we were buried with Him. And that now it is a perfect passive reality that we are in Christ. We've been put in Christ. And that, that will continue to invade the future forever. Nothing will disrupt it. So it's an important um, idea to begin to highlight this hidden in Christ. And so when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. And honestly, it reminds me, if you remember, of Moses. Uh, When Moses goes to the mountain and he receives the commands of God, right? He begins to receive the commands of God and um, he sees God, but through a veil. And even still, his face is just shining so bright, right? And he comes down, and even what the people were told is, you cannot touch this mountain. If you even get close to this mountain, you will die. This is a holy, holy God, and his glory is magnificent. And when Moses comes down, the people can't even look at his face. He has to wear that veil over his face, because even just seeing the back of God has completely transformed Moses in a way that people can't even begin to look at Jesus. And this is what the people in Colossae, they're beginning to consider. How can we, as people, approach a God like that? How can we, as sinful people, begin to ever enter into the presence of a holy king like that? Who we can't even touch the mountain that, he do, that he's on, that he's dwelling on. And so they begin to put these rules in place. Well, maybe to establish our holiness, we can observe more feast days. Maybe to, to add to our holiness, there's a knowledge that we can access that will ultimately get us there. And that's simply the, what Paul's saying is that is ludicrous. That, that is, goes against everything else. They're, they're asking the question, what do I need to add to experience the blessings of heaven to enter the presence of God? And what does Jesus say? What does Paul say at the end there? He says that when Christ it comes when he's revealed in all of his glory. You will begin to see that you were there all along. That you had to add nothing to your religion to get there. You simply were there. You've already been sipping from the cup of living water. You've already been feasting on the fellowship of God. You've already been enjoying the goodness of all of his glory. And when he is finally revealed, you will be revealed too in all of your glory. One that will not destroy you. One that will change you. And that is the difference. That is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's simply that by surrendering into the gospel of Christ, God's justice and glory will change us instead of destroy us. And that is what Paul's trying to get us to look at. That if we keep trying to go back to the old way of things, we keep trying to go back to a way that is broken. It's like online dating. 
It's like we've had this relationship with God for a long time and we have like these set days where we get together and we talk and we do all these things and then God finally shows up and wants to be in a relationship with us and we're like, well, but like, I want to like, can we just go back to the online thing? Like where we would get together every now and then and we would just, you know, we'd have our chat times and then we would send each other our wake up texts like, hey babe, how you doing? You know, like that's not what, that's not what God's calling us to. God's showed up. He's been incarnate. He's the real human person. He's died and risen again. And when He finally comes, you will begin to see, not that you needed to make yourself more holy, but that God had already started that in you and the work has been completed. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. And this is what Hebrews 10, 11 says, that every priest stands, he stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices and they can't take sins away. But Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Again, Psalm 110. And what does he say? For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts, and I will put them their mind, I will write them. He, he then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus has done it already. And it's only when you begin to take your eyes off of heaven that you become so concerned about what's happening on earth. It's only when you take your eyes off of the righteousness that we've been clothed in that you begin trying to establish it on your own on earth. The more that you allow your view of heaven to invade earth instead of your view of earth to invade how you get to heaven, the more you will begin to become like the God who has already begun the process in you. Sanctification is true, it's happening, and it will happen. Let's go on to verse 5. Therefore, all of these things, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Now, this is kind of a strange thing right here. Uh, He just said we've died in Christ. So now, some of you guys may have put to death your earthly members, right? How many of you guys have put to death? Put to death, yeah? How many of you guys have considered the members of your earthly body as dead? All right, I'm the only one with NASB, I guess. <laughs> How, what, do you guys have anything different than what, those two? Yeah. I have the new King James. Oh, what does yours say? Put to death. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying Oh, no, you're fine. No, you're good. Put to death is what mine Yeah. And put to death is probably an adequate translation. And here's what most people will ask. Well, why is Paul putting this command on us if it's something that's already been done? And again, something in the English translations that we're not getting that is being said in the Greek. Now, both this idea of, the, well, this put, this consider the, or I should say put to death, right? Put to death your earthly members is a command. It's a command. It's an imperative. But it's an aorist imperative. So again, I don't want to get into the, the grammar too much. But the point is this. When, when Paul says, consider seeking the things above, or continue doing that, and God says, set your mind on things above, right? When, when that begins to take place, it's a present imperative. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, the distinctions here are kind of fuzzy, and even those who are fluent in Greek and you know have their PhDs in the Greek language, we don't exactly understand how the biblical writers and really anyone in, in antiquity are using the differences between an aorist imperative and a present imperative. But I think that Paul is using a distinction here. Because what he's saying in the aorist imperative is that this has already been completed. Um, in terms of the Greek grammar, they wouldn't necessarily have past tense, present tense, future tense. They have those, but instead of saying what they, the tenses are in terms of like that happened or it's happening or it will happen, they use, they use their tenses to understand the aspect, which again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the, into the grammar, but the point is, is that when an aorist verb is used, it's this idea that it's been completed already. It's already been accomplished. It's done. When the present, when, when Paul uses the present, he's telling you to do something and continue doing it. He doesn't want you to continue to put to death these things in the same idea as us constantly over and over again doing them because they've already been, it's already been done. It's, it's this idea that by, by Christ's death and resurrection that these things have already been completed, but now they're just, they're just happening. They're, they're taking place. If, God, if, if Paul said it in the present imperative as if to say, put to death your sexual immorality, as if he were to say that, what he's saying is that means you're still struggling with sexual immorality over and over again and like keep putting it to death, but that's not what he's trying to say. That is what he's trying to say about seeking things above. That as you, as a person in the fellowship in the church, should continue seeking things above every single day. But it's not what he's saying about this. He's saying this has been done already. And so realize, actualize, do the things that have already been accomplished in you through the work of Christ. That is a difference. It's a very small. It's a small difference, and it's semantical in some ways, but it's an important one. And I think Paul uses the different grammatical categories for a specific reason. So, so if you guys have never taken a class with me before, you should know that I talk way too long, and uh, and I have a. I always think I'm not going to have enough content, and then I always talk way more than I should. So, anyways, so what does he say? Put to death those earthly members, to immorality, to impurity, to passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid the old self with its evil practices. Again, I'm going to stop there. It's kind of in the middle of the verse, but I think that I want to show kind of the juxtaposition between this first passage here and the one that he goes into. Now, again, he's saying, put it to death. Put it to death. This is a violent category that he's placing on these, on these things, on these evil practices. And all of them that he lists, do you guys notice anything about them all? Any tie that ties them all together? No. Most of them are, have to do with sexual sin. At least this first list. This first list of five. And then when it goes on, the rest of them have to do with this outburst of anger. And so, I, I don't know if it's because Paul knew that maybe the Colossians, this was a tendency for them. Um, whether they had, you know, it was pretty common at the time for there to be lots of temples around and prostitutes that ultimately were in those temples. Um, it was just easy access. I mean, there wasn't really legislation for morality in any, in any kind, you know. Um, I mean, it was one of those things that was kind of 
you, you did what you wanted. There were some things that, you know, in terms of the honor-shame culture that they would try to establish. But in terms of, of what people were willing and able to do, it was pretty open. Um, and so I don't know if this is something the Colossians were dealing with, uh, whether it was with sexual sin or even just anger that, you know, maybe he had heard that there were some people who would get frustrated, they would begin to gossip behind people's backs and stuff like that. I'm not sure exactly. But he at least begins to confront these two big types of realities um, up close and personal. And for all of us, I think that in some ways, all this, this is one of those cruel mirrors, you know, that show us all that some of us down the line, they struggle with these at, at some point a little bit. And so what I want to do is kind of go down the line and just kind of begin to work our way through like what exactly he means by some of these words when he's saying them. So that, first off, immorality, when he says put to death immorality, that specifically is the word porneia. And so that's where we get our, our English word porn, pornography. Um, it is from this word. And it's this expectation of fornication. It's this idea that people are ultimately engaging in sexual intercourse um, outside of marriage and in a way that is um, essentially... I mean, it's ultimately, it's disregarding its intention, right? And so that immorality, it's, it's objectifying what is a sacred reality. Impurity. This especially is a word used when after one has fornicated, they become unholy. Um, so he's saying, get away from this. Passion, evil desire, both of those have to do with lusts that go unchecked. It's the word that Paul uses in Romans 1 when he's addressing those who have exchanged... Um, you know, the truth about God for a lie, and they have exchanged natural relations with men and women for unnatural ones. It's this, this idea, this passion or lust, that ultimately, gone unchecked, begins to morph into something completely different. And what, what Paul says in Romans 1 is actually God's going to give you up to that so that that morphing actually, once, once you have surrendered to it so much, it, it begins to just continue morphing into something completely distorted, you know, something completely depraved of what it was always supposed to be. It's a sacred thing. And, you know, what Augustine even once said, just the old church father, he says that typically what we do with sin, uh, or typically what sin is, is good things that we have used for our own thing, our own advantage and made into bad things. And so, you know, God created sex as a good thing. He created it for us. But then ultimately, we take, we took it and we decided to use it for our own advantage, for our own, um, you know, our passions or desires, which had become corrupted. And so because of that, now we're, we're beginning to see um, basically a morphing from that. And honestly, I think it's pretty obvious that we can all see that in our culture, at least to some capacity, because I think probably pornography more than, at, obviously any time probably in history, is, uh, is abused because um, it's abused, as if it could be used holistically. Uh, it is obviously a, an evil that has penetrated into our society, and it's, it's become so available, so accessible to people that everyone now can grab a hold of it. And what Paul is saying is that a char- the characteristic of, of someone who's habitually engaging with this in a way that they themselves have surrendered to it is actually identi- it's, it's identifying you as somebody who's still walking as a son of disobedience. Uh, and this is true not just of sexual immorality, but of every sin, of every single sin. That if we engage in it habitually, if we turn a blind eye to it, if we say to ourselves, well, it's okay, it's fine, that we have actually begun to, to identify the fact that we're actually still part of the sons of disobedience. Our faith in Christ has really changed nothing. And so we should really consider whether we actually believe the truths the, the, of, of Christ. You know. Um, and so what does he mean by putting it to death? Again, it's a violent idea, isn't it? It's a violent idea of 
of getting a hold of this thing and completely demolishing it. And it's hard, it's, it, in some ways, with, with sexual immorality, it might even be easier in some ways to do that with that than anger because like sexual immorality has, these, um, has more physical consequences in the sense that, you know, stop looking at that, stop, um, stop engaging in this, you know, stop, it, it really it's the passion side that begins to become more challenging. Um, how many of you guys were here when we went through the Colossians in a, in a sermon series? Do you guys, were you guys here when we did that? It was a couple years ago. Um, here's how you would remember it. We had like colorful cards that went all over the ceiling of the worship center. You guys remember that? So what, what that was, we did this thing where we had everybody write down what they wanted to put on in Christ and what they wanted to put off in Christ. And we had every person do that. They went and they put them on the stage. And what we did is, as a staff, we took all those cards and we prayed over them. But what we came to see throughout all of those cards, the number one thing that people wanted to put off uh, was anger. That, that was the thing that people felt like they struggled with the most, uh, which is interesting. And then lust was, was a close second. And so whether it was because of a passage like this that's already kind of moving our thoughts that way or whether people just began to identify this anger issue that they had, there is, is clearly this, this idea that a lack of patience is, um, is pretty widespread, right? And so we are reminded even that the fact that anger... And these lusts are put not too far away from each other is a reminder that they're not so... And we tend to weigh them on a scale and we say, lust, angers, you know, everyone gets angry, you know. When in all reality, both are equal on this scale. They both separate us from Christ. And that if, if the longer we let these things kind of move in our life and begin to dismantle us, uh, dismantle our relationships, the more that, uh, again, we begin to... We're, we're, we're beginning to put our things, our mind on earthly things instead of the heavenly ones. And so Paul is asking that we do a, a violent thing, but ultimately what he's reminding us of is that that violent thing has been done in Christ. That this idea of violence has already taken place through the act of the crucifixion of Jesus. And that um, how we begin to do that now is continuing to surrender to that. So whether that's confession, whether it's prayer, whether it's the fellowship of believers, all of these things God has given us to allow the stage uh, for God to put these things to death in us and through us, through the Holy Spirit. And God continues to do that. In fact, um, God says that if you don't do that, the wrath of God is coming. And it's coming for those who haven't done that yet. But some specific things, Romans 6, which is about baptism in a lot of ways, talks very specifically about these things. So I want to read Romans a couple verses from Romans 6, but also I want to read Romans 8, because I think it sums up this, this passage really well. It says this, uh, Knowing this in verse 6, Romans 6, verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him. Our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see the juxtaposition he's making there in verse 18? He's saying that once you were slaves of sin, you just kept sinning, you kept doing the things of sin. It was all you could do. And then when the Holy Spirit came, you became slaves of righteousness. So where sin might still be there, it's only a reminder of who you were, not who you are. And I love the way Tim Keller has explained this. Um, he says that, you know, basically before, our, before, Christ, before Christ's work on the, on the cross, what he accomplished, we were in a battle that we could not, um, that we could not win. But he says when the Holy Spirit enters into our life, we're now in a battle that we cannot lose. 
and it's a, it's a gigantic difference. And it's especially a gigantic difference when you consider that it's a battle that we ourselves are not really fighting alone. The Holy Spirit is doing it almost exclusively, if not exclusively. Um, and so what he begins to say is that we have become slaves of righteousness. And in verse 22 he says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you, de- you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. But now because you've been free, you will be sanctified. Because you've been freed, God will see it through into eternal life. Romans eight twelve through 13 says this, So then, brothers, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so it is the Spirit that animates us in the ability to put these things to death, to put them to death. So um, I've spent a lot of time on this, but you guys have any questions about that specifically, this area? All right, we'll keep going. Yeah? So you're saying that greed is in relationship to the sexual immorality. That yes. They become yes. Uh, it's almost and and what what most commentators that I've read have even said is actually idolatrous. That it's act, it's become so much of a something that's coveted that it's actually exalted to a place uh, where where people are essentially living for it. They're serving it as a god, and so it begins to define their their very existence. So yeah, great question. Yeah. And I think, of course, that, you know, Paul's addressing certain sins here, but we could add all of them, you know, and he does throughout different letters. Um, but I think for, for Paul, at least, the sexual sin and the, and the anger and all of those things, I, I almost want to think that he's using these specific ones, simply, one, because of how challenging they are in the life of a believer, um, but also um, because it continues, uh, if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, Right? If Jesus says, if you even think lustfully about a woman, you've committed adultery. If you even hate another person, you've committed murder. And what Jesus does when he's preaching a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through is he has said, he's essentially indicted every single person to say, you have broken the law even if you have thought these things. Because what it has revealed is that sin has, has penetrated your life and permeated it, and that the natural um, result, the natural result of that is a life that is engaging. It's motivated by this, these sins, whether you want, want it to be or not. Right? And what Paul is saying that through the cross, through the Holy Spirit that, he, that Christ has given us, um, that it's become flipped now, where we're motivated now. Our thoughts are now engaged in what is good. And it is only those bad things that peek their head in every now and then that's still a part of the old man that's being destroyed, that's decaying, that is being um, basically being put to death in a way that it already has been established, but that death is a, is a slow one. And uh, most people believe that it's because it would be crushing if it would happen immediately, uh, that this idea of just being completely released of all of our sins um, would not only destroy us, but actually it would, it would, you know, we learn so much through our weaknesses, right? What does Paul say? And I think it's, Second um, Corinthians 12, that when he's talking about 
of God taking away this thorn in his flesh. And he's like, I pleaded with God, take it away from me. And that's kind of how we get with some of these things. Um, but instead of saying, I have to be perfect to be a Christian, what we get to say is, I get to rely on the strength of God. I get to rely on His grace. I get to rely on the fact that all of these things are, are taking place in me, whether I can always measure them or not. And, and ultimately, that, that God is going to see them through, that the sanctification will happen. So, yeah. Any other questions in regard to this, this passage here? Cool. All right. Well, we'll move on. Uh, chapter, or verse 10. He says, And have, uh, have put on the new self who is being renewed. So he kind of continues that thought from before when he's saying, um, let me see here. When he's saying, To do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. I wish I could spend more time on those, but I've only got 10 more minutes left at the most, and I am not even close. So, like I said, this is what happens every single time. So, um, he says, having put on the new self, and again, put on, I'm going to blaze through this, put on is actually clothe. So what was a violent demonstration toward our sin becomes a uh, a new graceful demonstration toward our righteousness. What God told us once to put to death, he's now telling us through Paul to now clothe ourselves with something new. And again, it's an aorist. It's an aorist imperative. Because once this happens, it's completed already. And this has happened through Christ. That this has already been put to Christ even as it continues to work itself out in our daily lives. And what does he continue to say? Put on the new self. Clothe yourselves with a new self who is being renewed. That word renewed, again, it's passive. You're not doing the renewing. The Holy Spirit is. And at any time you begin to attribute your own righteousness to your own effort is when you begin to completely disregard what Christ has accomplished, which is why Paul says, keep looking at Christ. When you keep looking to heaven, that is when it will invade your earthly views. That is when you will stop trying to, to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. When you look to heaven and you see what Christ has done, when you see all that He has accomplished, when you see that it is finished, only then will you begin to see how you are being renewed to this true knowledge that is happening within you. It's a true knowledge, which is something that Paul has been addressing throughout the whole letter. He's really, he wants them to come to a true knowledge. He says it in chapter 1, he says it in chapter 2, he says it now in chapter 3. Because they are being bombarded by what? Empty philosophies, new knowledge, this love of wisdom that ultimately is being corrupted, changed, because of, of, of what people think they can add to the grace that God has already displayed. The true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Again, he goes back to chapter 1, right? This is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation. This is the image that God is trying to force us, not force us, but He is changing us to. He's changing us to that. It's a renewal in which there is no distinction. That when we become more and more like this image through God's Holy Spirit, through His sanctification, we begin to, to look more and more like Christ. Why? So that when He is revealed, we will begin to see that we, we were always there with Him that we will be revealed in glory as well. And there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, between circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. It's a new self. 
I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He talks about this cottage. Uh, if you've ever read Mere Christianity, he talks about this cottage and that when we ask God to move in uh, through faith, that he starts patching up all these holes. I think I've even said this on a Sunday morning before, but he starts patching up the holes in his cottage because it's like there's water leaks everywhere. He's starting to like redesign some things. He's trying to get the place in order because you know it was a bad it was a bad looking place, right? Because of what had sin had done. So God moves in. He starts he starts putting things in order. But then all of a sudden he starts tearing down walls. He starts putting up new quarters of the house. He builds an upstairs. He builds a deck and a pool. And we're like, God, what are you doing? I thought you were just going to move in and kind of you know tidy up the place. But what what we begin to see and what what Lewis describes is that God begins to move in and says, I'm not just making, I'm not just fixing up the patches of your life. I'm making it into a palace because I'm coming to live within it. And that's what we begin to see with when our lives become renewed. That when God moves in, something else is happening. He's not just trying to make us perfect. He's trying to make us something different. And it looks a whole lot more like Him than our best self. And so as we begin to lean into that through the Holy Spirit, we, become to be, we, we begin to be changed. Um, let's see, what else can I skip? Uh, so, in terms of uh, in terms of the distinctions, uh, there's no more distinction between our identities anymore. There's no more Greek or Jew. So this was kind of the general um, juxtaposition between these two categories of people. The Jews were one one people, and the Gentiles, really what they would be labeled, were kind of everybody else. So if you didn't know that, Gentiles literally means everybody else. And typically, when Paul uses the word Gentiles, he uses the Greek word ethnos. Here he uses the, the word Helen, uh, which is where we get Hellenistic and Greek. It's Greek culture, so he uses the word Greek. But he's making that juxtaposition between those who are Greek, those who are Jewish, and saying that that, that distinction remains no longer. It's been, it's been done with. And then he goes on to the circumcised and uncircumcised. Same thing. He's recapitulating the idea. He's reemphasizing it. Uncircumcision versus circumcision doesn't matter anymore. Uh, when he goes on to barbarian, Scythian, He's talking about these other people groups who people would look down upon because they, they were just more barbaric, barbarians, right? That's where we get the word from because they were rugged. They were doing things that were ultimately um, just seemed uh, less than human, <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say. And the Scythians were, were similar in that capacity, although some people didn't always look at the bar- barbarians like that. But last he says slave and free. Because not only has this changed every, every status ethnically, every status religiously, that's what he's emphasizing here. Not only are you not a Greek or Jew ethnically anymore, not only are you circumcised and uncircumcised, not only are you religiously different, not only are you nationally different, but you are personally, economically different. You're no longer a slave or a free man. You're no longer wealthy or poor. You simply are one in Christ. And when you begin to see that, there is no room for how you treat another individual. This is why our, all of the world has been shaped by the Christian understanding of, the pers- of a person's human worth, of their dignity, just simply because they are a person, they're a human being, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of how, how poor and rich, regardless of anything that they can contribute. They are simply worth something because they are a human being and God made them. This, this is how, what, how our Constitution was established on, uh, regardless of how that may change in the future. Now the point is that every single thing 
that we, the ways in which we treat people needs to change if we are going to be living in, in a world where Christ is our Lord, where He is Lord of all. And our identity changes to one where we are no longer defined, again, by our nationality, by our heritage, by our economic standing, but simply that we are in Christ. And lastly, um, what time is it? Three minutes. All right, here we go. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Again, clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves. Put on a heart of compassion. Um, and this doesn't just apply to an individual, but all of our community. That's what he's saying, that ultimately, if our community is defined by this holiness, we will begin to see Christ in an amazing way. Each of us contribute parts of this. You know, one of the things I was going to have you do is say, just which one of these are you best at? Because to be honest with you, I am not good at compassion personally. I, I struggle with that. Um, and But I think that I am fairly patient. I'm a, I feel like I'm a fairly patient person. Um, and I, I feel like I'm pretty good at forgiveness. And one of the things that being a part of the community does, especially when they're all bound in love, is that we can actually lean on the people who are better at those things. Not so that they can be good at it and I can be bad at it, but so that I can see them and see the ways and the Holy Spirit can begin to engage me and to see how this is actually displayed, to see how it's carried out really well. And so... What our, what our holiness as a community does is continue to impact not only our own lives, but every single life that begins to be drawn into it. And verse 15 goes on, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is important because this idea is one like a game master who essentially is coordinating the rules and kicking people out when it's bad. When the peace of Christ rules in your heart, regardless of what enters it, God will be the determining factor of whether it stays or not. If the peace of Christ is truly in your life, regardless of whatever sin you've committed or goodness you have done, it is going to be funneled through the guardian of your heart, which is Jesus. He's the ruler. He's the umpire. It's not a peace that is dominating. It is one that is filtering. Because the peace of Christ is one that, even when suffering comes, it no longer destroys us. It changes us. That is a peace that only Christ can bring. And it says, this is the peace to which you've been called in one body. And so remember, as we live a part of a community, that peace is a necessary requirement. For those of you who have difficulties with somebody else, whether it's in your family or in this church or at your work, what you're called to do as a Christian is to allow the peace of Christ to invade that relationship. It's not okay to not be forgiving somebody. It's not okay to allow there to be dissension among the brothers. Because Christ is somebody who has bared a burden that he never deserved, who showed us grace and forgave us when we never could deserve it. And the inability to extend that to anybody else is a complete lack of understanding about what it is you've received. You must forgive. And the inability to do so separates you from God completely. But, God, well, God, but what Paul says is that people who are defined by the Spirit not only are able to clothe themselves with kindness, humility, gentleness, but the peace of Christ rules in their heart, the Word of Christ dwells within their heart, and they begin to sing songs together that ultimately worship the God who has done all of these things. And that's what we get to do now. So, as we end today, 
guys, thanks for hanging with me. And next week we'll jump into, I'll try to give a little review over these parts since I didn't get to hammer them too hard. But we'll get into chapter 4 and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll finish out the new roles that Christ has given us by being in Christ through wives and husbands. Um, but also finish out how Paul finishes the letter, which is um, his urgence to keep praying and the power of that that consists in that. So let me pray for you and then you all can go worship. Father God, thank you so much for your son Jesus. Thank you for all that he's done, God. And we pray that our hearts would be so set on him, on you, Father, as we look to heaven. God, as our view of heaven changes our view of earth. God, as our view of all you've accomplished releases us from feeling like we have to do it on our own, uh, measuring ourselves constantly, God, and feeling like we are short. God, we know that and we trust that you are working in us a good work and you will complete it. And Father, we pray that you would put to death those things, that we would bring them before you, and that the Holy Spirit would continue to just rip them apart. God, we know that sometimes that will hurt, but we also know, God, that um, it will always be good. And Father, we pray that as we leave today, God, you would continue to give us uh, the ability to live in communion with, with you and one another. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.